0: Welcome to Pod Academy with Genome Biology. I'm Joe Barrett. Genome Biology is an online academic journal publishing cutting edge research in genomics, the study of the entire genetic material within an organism, the genome. In the journal's first podcast, Genome Biology focuses on the challenge of sequencing the genome in order to discover the genetic basis of disease. Using genetics to discover the basis of disease is by no means a new concept but advances in the techniques used to sequence genomes have started to allow researchers to look for specific genetic variations or mutations causing disease or playing a role in disease development. Sequencing genetic material with a view to making predictions about health and disease has obvious wider implications for the future of healthcare, and this podcast looks at several different approaches to finding genetic mutations playing a role in disease. The first researcher we spoke to, Dr Jim Lupsky, talks about his research into Charcot-Marie-Toothed Syndrome which has affected him and members of his family, and which he has been investigating for over 20 years. Because a number of different genetic mutations can lead to this disease, their identification has proved particularly difficult. Whole genome sequencing of Jim's own genome in 2010 eventually allowed the identification of the mutation causing his own disease. This was an end to a personal quest, but also proof that sequencing the genome of an individual can return meaningful information about a disease, a finding that has significant implications for the future of personalised medicine. The whole genome approach has been made possible following the generation of the reference human genome, which gives a standard reference for comparing the genome sequences of individuals. Variation in the sequence might give clues as to the genetic basis of disease, Although falling in cost, sequencing a whole genome is nevertheless a costly business, and it was this hurdle that led Dr J. Shendra and colleagues to try and find a cheaper approach to finding meaningful results. The approach of Dr. Shendra and colleagues was to focus purely on one part of the genome thought to be particularly important to health and disease, the exome. The exome consists of the exons, or regions of the DNA that code for the proteins, which are the building blocks of cells and therefore whole organisms. If the DNA in the exome is mutated, abnormal proteins could be produced and the disruptions this causes could lead to disease. The exome comprises a comparatively small part of the whole genome and focusing on these protein-coding regions reduces the cost of disease gene identification. Dr. Shendra, the guest editor of September's special issue on exome sequencing, talks us through the development of exome sequencing as a viable approach to identifying disease mutations. The technique has proven very successful thus far in identifying causes of Mendelian diseases, and Dr Joris Veltman spoke with us about his work on mutations in mental retardation. As we hear in the podcast, there are caveats to this narrower approach. The exome doesn't necessarily tell the whole story. Elaine Mardis, a specialist in cancer genomics, talks about the suitability of exome sequencing in the cancer field. As a young technology in a rapidly changing field, there are many questions currently being asked about how genome sequencing will have a practical application to healthcare. The topic stimulates interesting debate among specialists about what will be needed to bring these sequencing techniques to the clinic and what ethical issues we need to consider. What, for example, does one do about the discovery of unexpected findings when sequencing genomes? We now join Genome Biology's Special Issues Editor, who will guide us through this podcast.
1: Genome Biology, biology for the post-genomic era.
2: Hello, and welcome to Genome Biology's inaugural podcast. I'm Hannah Stower, the Special Issues Editor, and I'll be accompanying you through today's podcast focusing on the identification of disease genes through whole genome and exome sequencing. So why have we chosen to make a podcast now? In the September issue of Genome Biology, we have a bumper special issue focusing on exome sequencing. In the past year or so, this technique has allowed many researchers to identify mutations responsible for a wide range of diseases. And so in this podcast, we're going to discuss this technique and its big brother, whole genome sequencing, a technique that continues to fall in cost as well as being more accessible for researchers. We're going to hear from four researchers involved in whole genome or exome sequencing. Of course, the search for disease gene mutations didn't start with whole genome and exome sequencing. Researchers have been searching for disease genes for years, and the first person we interviewed, Jim Lupski from the Baylor College of Medicine, had been searching for the genetic cause of Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease, a disease that has affected his family. This disease is one of the most common inherited nerve disorders, but it is currently incurable. It is genetically heterogeneous, causing Jim a long journey to find the cause of his disease. Finally, in an attempt to identify his causative mutations, he had his genome sequenced. As you'll hear, Jim's quest to find the cause of his disease somewhat dictated his academic career, and we join him as he remembers his graduate days.
3: During the time that I was in graduate school, I happened to uh, have picked up my issue of nature and uh, read uh, Jim Gazzella's report of linking Huntington's disease to a specific region in the human genome. And it became pretty obvious to me that um, this could turn out to be a very powerful way to get at the un- a base, the basis, the genetic basis, of a number of different uh, diseases. I was fortunate enough to go in 1986 to the Cold Spring Harbor Symposium, which was on the molecular biology of Homo sapiens back then. And it was there that Kari Mullis got up and started talking about PCR, and it became pretty obvious to me that uh, we were gonna be able to do a lot of the stuff we were playing with in bacteria using uh, human, DNA, and and, uh, this was also the very symposium where some of the first discussions of the Human Genome Project took place. I um, uh, spent three years doing pediatrics, but in combination with what what I had my electives of pediatrics, I did medical genetics, and then started my own laboratory. And initially, actually, was collecting families during some of that time of my residency and also collected my own family uh, back in 1986 and got extensive electrophysiological studies done on three generations that were alive at that time, including three of my four grandparents were still alive um, uh, in their late 80s. So it was a good time to get all the material needed for doing uh, some kind of uh, genetic studies, But in my family, it was recessive. So it, it seemed to be a much more difficult problem. So we tried to do a tractable problem, and that was study the dominant diseases, uh, like it had been done for Huntington's, And so we collected large, dominant families with chalcomary tooth disease. And as we honed in on the locus for chalcomary tooth disease, or what we thought was the locus, at that point, all we knew, what we thought we knew, is that there was seemingly one linked locus on chromosome one, and that was done by protein polymorphisms. And that locus, but when most of us checked our families, we found they were not linked to that locus. So um, it didn't seem that there was a major locus hit yet, and we really didn't know if it was gonna be one gene, one predominant gene, or There already was literature suggesting heterogeneity for this disorder because there were X-linked forms, dominant forms, and recessive forms. So we knew there at least had to be one gene on X and one gene on the autosomes. So we honed in on this locus to try to go for the gene. In the process of doing so, we kept getting these weird findings in many of our analyses that didn't quite make sense. So we would see an artifact, what we thought was an artifact, of several probes that seemed to be very close. But then we thought we were going in the right direction. But then when you did linkage analysis, it actually suggested we might be moving away because you saw what was an apparent recombinant as we honed in further and actually then developed dinucleotide repeat polymorphisms to use for linkage. This was about 1990. What we saw is in the patients we saw three alleles rather than the usual two alleles you would get inheriting one from each parent. And it was a little bit tricky back then because there were a lot of stutter bands you would see with nucleotide repeat. So you really had to carefully look at what you were seeing, but when we associated that back to the southern blotting data, whenever we saw three alleles and yet you were heterozygous. In a patient with a disease, heterozygous for RFLP alleles, you could always see dosage was different in the RFLP allele. It could be either one or the other, but you would see two-to-one dosage or one-to-two dosage in the RFLP. And then it started to click that there was some kind of a duplication going on at this locus. And we carefully studied all this and then looked at several families, and we saw the majority of patients always seemed to have this duplication. And we were working very hard at that, but we still never had found the cause of my disease, even though at that point we were up to, uh, between laboratories around the world, uh, over 30 genes in which mutations, point mutations, simple nucleotide variation could cause charcomary tooth disease. With that in mind, uh, 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 and as part of the continuing quest to figure out my own disease, we uh, uh, undertook sequencing of my genome, as well as trying to perform extensive copy number analysis, because it really would have been a bummer if we go and do the whole genome sequence, and we missed copy number. For my lab, to miss copy number would have been embarrassing. The long and the short of it was we found uh, um, uh, one mutation at 6x, and by 30x, it was very, very clear that in this gene, SH3TC2, um, I had compound heterozygous mutations at that specific locus. And furthermore, my three affected siblings had the identical pair of mutations and each parent was a heterozygous carrier as would be anticipated from uh, 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 Mendelian segregation. Then we spent a lot of time trying to understand what it meant for the rest of the family.
2: That was Jim Lupski, discussing his journey to find the genetic cause for Charcot-Marie-Tooth syndrome. However, sequencing techniques are not always developed with the identification of disease genes in mind. Exome sequencing, for example, was developed initially just to reduce the cost of sequencing genomes. In the process of developing this technique, Jay Schenger and his colleagues from the University of Washington also found that by targeting the exomes, the protein coding regions only, that they had reduced the search space in which to look for these disease mutations and could do so with great success. I caught up with him to talk about how he developed exome sequencing and then started using it to solve the genetic causes of some diseases.
4: So I guess uh, the origins of my involvement uh, trace back to when I was just wrapping up my graduate work um, in George Church's lab, and we developed one of several implementations of next-generation sequencing. And the technologies were still at a point where whole-genome sequencing was cost-prohibitive for uh, most or nearly all groups. As a consequence of that, I think we and and others uh, began thinking pretty deeply about methods of targeted capture that were compatible with the the scale and underlying technologies involved in in next-generation sequencing platforms. I think it became quite clear that the the timing was right sort of for a good match between where the sequencing was at and um, uh, the notion of applying uh, capture technology specifically to comprehensively target um, the approximately 1% of the human genome that is protein coding, uh, which uh, has come to be termed uh, the exome. In my own lab, we began working on um, array-based hybridization capture methods that would comprehensively target the uh, human exome to relatively high coverage and and quality. The culmination of, of that line of work was a publication in 2009. In which we performed exome capture and sequencing of 12 humans. Somewhere along the way, in the course of developing the technology and starting to apply it, you know, we were thinking about where we could actually demonstrate that it was useful. The, the simplest place to start is sort of with the, the simplest diseases, which um, happen to be um, Mendelian or uh, single gene diseases. And you know, there are obviously thousands of, of Mendelian disorders that have been solved over the past. Uh, uh, several decades um, using a combination of linkage mapping and positional cloning um, or other approaches such as candidate gene sequencing. But there remain thousands of Mendelian diseases or suspected Mendelian diseases that, for which the causal gene has not been identified. So uh, we came up with uh, what we felt was a compelling strategy for applying exome sequencing of a relatively small number of individuals to uh, try and pinpoint the locus for um, unsolved Mendelian disorders. So, um,
2: was it was it obvious that um, this technology was um, going to be highly applicable to these diseases from the outset? Or was uh, that not, not at all.
4: <laughs> so, so it was it was neither it was neither obvious that the technology would work well enough to, you know, to to, to sensitive enough to pick up uh, potentially causal variants, um, and it was also uh, not entirely obvious what one would need to do to narrow to a single gene, right? And, you know, there, there was some advantage to, to focusing on the exome in the sense that, in the you know, looking at the history of Mendelian disorders, one could have a fairly high a priori belief that causative variants would alter protein coding sequences, right? And that was the basis for focusing on coding sequences and, and adjacent splice sites, which is almost always where causative variants are, are for um, most single gene disorders. But I guess what was, what was unclear was really the, the extent of the background and, and what it would take to, to get down to to one gene, and that was really the exploratory nature of the study. Uh, and, and for that purpose, we actually started with uh, Freeman-Sheldon syndrome, which was a disorder um, for which we already knew the right answer, and uh, sequenced uh, four individuals with Freeman-Sheldon syndrome and uh, eight HAPMAP controls and, and basically essentially used something we call discrete filtering, uh, which is a... Uh, intuitive strategy of just assuming that variants that are common in the human population are not causal for Mendelian disorders, and using that as a filter. And then in addition to that, assuming that all individuals with the same disorder are going to share protein-altering variants in the same gene. And in the case of Freeman-Sheldon syndrome, that ended up being sufficient to narrow to a single gene despite only having four affected individuals. There's a few points here that are compelling. So one is that the necessity of controls. So how do we not included in our study eight map controls and performed exome sequencing on them exactly equivalent to how we performed the exome sequencing on the disease probands. I don't think there's any way we would have been able to narrow down to a single gene. So that's one. Uh, And we also, of course, needed the extensive catalogs of common variants in the human population that are available through through dbSNP and the like, right? And so at the time, this seemed like, like a lot, right? Now it's only been two years, and now we have thousands of control exomes and that kind of thing. But in retrospect, we're sort of very glad we did that set of controls. So a second, I think, compelling point is that I think with exome sequence, the real the real breakthrough in terms of applying things like exome sequencing or genome sequencing to Mendelian disorders is that this is the first time that we are able to solve these disorders in a way that is entirely dependent independent of linkage-based analysis, right? So. For a hundred years, um, you know, since you know the early, the early 1900s, when people were mapping traits in flies, you know, linkage has kind of been an essential aspect of, of what we do in genetics. Whereas, you know, narrowing to a single gene in the context of Freeman-Sheldon syndrome was something that we did with no no sort of reference to, to linkage. One of the reasons that uh, this was, I think, an interesting test case was that it could not, have, you know, this disease, this is a disease that could not have been solved with linkage analysis. Freeman-Sheldon syndrome was primarily saw, caused by de novo mutations, and the individuals who have Freeman-Seldon syndrome, by and large, you know, don't necessarily reproduce, or this, this phenotype does not track through pedigrees in a way that would facilitate mapping. And so the only reason we knew the right answer is that uh, it had been identified through, through a good guess and uh, candidate gene analysis, right? You know, that aspect, that the idea that one could can identify candidate genes or, or, or actual causal genes for Mendelian disorders by a strategy that does not at all rely on linkage represents a significant shift for the field and one that opens up the possibility of solving other Mendelian disorders that are intractable to linkage analysis.
2: Exome sequencing has provided new promise for solving the genetic basis of many Mendelian diseases. Simply by reducing the search base in which to look for mutations, researchers are now able to prioritize the variants that their sequencing experiments pick up more easily. Of note, Jay discusses the first disease that he focused on with his approach, Freeman-Sheldon syndrome, a rare form of multiple congenital contracture syndrome, which is often caused by de novo mutations. These mutations arise in parental germ cells and can cause disease in children despite having asymptomatic parents. Such mutations are difficult to trace by family trees. With exome sequencing, these de novo mutations are identifiable by sequencing patient family trios in which the patient is sequenced along with their two parents. The de novo mutations are present in the patient, but not in the parents. With the advent of these exome sequencing technologies, researchers are beginning to identify more and more of these de novo mutations. For example, cases of autism, schizophrenia and mental retardation have all recently been attributed to de novo mutations. I spoke with Joris Feltman from the Radboud University about his work on mental retardation and how he was able to identify de novo mutations using exome sequencing.
1: So we've been studying intellectual uh, disability for a long time. Still, we see that for a large majority of patients, number variations do not explain the... Uh the cause of the disease, so it's, it's logical then to look for point mutations or indels, and there uh, exome sequencing is now, for the first time, allowing us to to look at the entire uh, coding part of the genome. So also, because uh, we, we knew that the de novo uh, CNVs were frequent, we, of course, started thinking about de novo cop, uh, point mutations, um, but that, decided to go for uh, uh, exome sequencing in patient-parent trios. The reason being also is that uh, if you do exome sequencing in a, in a, in a single patient, you will find many variants and of course the prioritization of the variants is the major issue. How can you find a a variant that is causing disease? You can look for rare variants um, but then you still have a a few hundred per exome. You can look for for variants that influence the the, let's say, the protein parts or amino acid or nonsense mutations, still you have very many variants. But then when you look for de novo mutations by actually filtering out all of the variants that are inherited from unaffected uh, parents, uh, then suddenly you just end up with a, a few variants. And that's that's uh, what we hypothesized and uh, based on literature. So we started uh, doing that last year in 10 patients with uh, unexplained uh, sporadic forms of mitochondrial. And that's how we started with exome sequencing.
2: Could you just clarify exactly what de novo mutations are?
1: So uh, what we did is we sequenced the uh, DNA from blood from uh, isolators from, uh, from patients as well as from parents. What you see then is that there are mutations that are present in the heterozygous state uh, in the patient's DNA in, in, in blood uh, and you do not see that in the, in the DNA from uh, blood from parents. So that means that very likely the mutation is present the germ line in germline the, in the patient, but it's not uh, present uh, germline in the parent. And then uh, you think that probably something uh, went wrong uh, during the copying of the DNA in either uh, the uh, spermatozoites or uh, o- sorry, uh, oocytes.
2: Why do you think this kind of mutation, has, you know, the importance of this kind of mutation has gone undetected for so so long?
1: Of course people have identified before de novo mutations in in rare diseases um uh, but that was for very specific genes where where, where they identified these uh, for example we ourselves identified novel mutations in the gene CHD7 as a cause of charge syndrome after we identified a region by by looking at the deletion uh, so after finding that that gene before so the problem uh, of course is in disorder like like uh, intellectual disability that you expect uh, that that um, genes all over the genome can be mutated you don't know where to look for so summer sequencing is not a, is not a tool you can use uh, and there, of course, now exome sequencing is is perfect because you can, in one experiment, look at all of the variants uh, that are present uh, in the coding part of the, of the genome uh, of uh, of a patient. And then, by doing a trio approach, where you also sequence the uh, the DNA from the from the parents, you can uh, immediately identify the inherited variants and then filter out those and end up with uh, the few uh, de novo mutations.
2: Of course, exome sequencing may not be applicable to all diseases. So far, we have heard how exome sequencing is particularly applicable to identifying disease genes involved in Mendelian disease. What about other more complex diseases such as cancer? I caught up with the cancer sequencing expert, Elaine Mardis, who researches at the Genome Centre, Washington University. I asked her about the application of sequencing technologies, and we began by discussing the application of whole genome sequencing versus exome sequencing to cancer.
5: I mean, so, you know, exome sequencing certainly has some value. I think that our laboratory has long been committed for cancer genomes just because there's so much structural variation in the cancer genomes to, to not using exomes but rather using whole genome sequencing-based methods. And what we've begun to document now that the number of tumors you know, continues to get higher and higher in terms of specific tumor types or body site occurrence or whatever you want to call it. Is that that it's quite clear that genes can be impacted by a multitude of different types of variation in the somatic genome. So it, yes, it's true that lots of, of point mutations and maybe focused insertion deletion events are there, and that that could be picked up by exome sequencing. But of course, we also see uh, lots of evidence of portions or entire genes being deleted, genes being altered by uh, chromosomal translocation. And it, you know the, I guess, variation within that subset of structural variation is quite wide, even if you look at some sort of a subclass of disease that's characterized by a translocation. That translocation looks different in every patient that we examine. So the notion of sort of putting together a a tiling path, uh, you know, or something to actually capture that out in a directed fashion is essentially pretty fraught with peril. I think in general it it likely wouldn't work if you were just going in after one specific thing, um, you know, with with some sort of a targeted capture method. So this is sort of the essence of the choice, um, whole genome versus sexome, where I think the papers that have used sexome, You know, it's a a reasonable approach. You do find mutations, to be sure. It's just that if you get a negative result, for example, or if you only capture one copy, there's not an easy way to to ascertain that using the targeted capture methods, whereas it's much more straightforward with whole genome.
2: For cancer, exome sequencing may not be the most appropriate technique because of the certain types of genetic variation that occur in cancer, that is, copy number variation. These cause there to be multiple copies of genes, And so it is difficult to discern exactly which one is captured by exome sequencing, and also difficult to ascertain the level of copy number variation. There are also some general limitations to exome capture.
5: I think the other thing that we're, you know, really convinced of is that as more and more projects begin to tease out the regulatory elements of the genome, which are often not in genes, um, they can be in regions in and around genes, Um, You know, this is again uh, an area where an exome capture reagent doesn't necessarily, you know, go after that particular region of the genome.
2: By choosing to only sequence the coding regions of the genome, you may miss a lot of the additional information in the genome that codes regulatory sequences for genes. That is, there are sequences that may be important in switching genes on and off, and where they are mutated they may cause disease. So, exome sequencing is missing this information. In light of this, I asked Jay Shenger if he thought that there was an expiry date to exome sequencing
4: so uh <laughs> i i you know I think it's it, so I, I i would argue that um you know we've dichotomized this idea of exome versus genome, and yeah. I just question whether it's an appropriate dichotomy in the sense that the way I tend to think of it is more of a continuum right so Uh, on on one extreme, I guess, you know, you may have, maybe you have exome as kind of a comprehensive approach of doing protein coding sequences only. Then you have genome. But this notion that whole genome sequencing is whole genome sequencing is wrong, right? So we haven't even finished the first human genome, right? So this idea that, you know, next generation sequencing leads to a truly comprehensive picture of all genetic variation that is present in an individual or complete, you know, complete diploid genomes is, is not true. Even whole genomes are a, are, are, fall short of comprehensiveness. And so I think it's, you know, it's, it's really a question of, of trade-offs and your a priori belief in what the right answer is and relative costs. So I think we, we are approaching a point where the difference in cost between exomes and genomes is, is diminishing, right? And I think as that gap drops, it will make more sense to shift towards genome sequencing. But I think that will not change anything in terms. That will not change much in terms of how the initial analyses are done. I think just as the first whole genome papers focus almost exclusively on the exome in terms of their analysis of potential disease-causing variants, I think that will continue to be the case until we improve our ability to interpret the functional consequences um, to interpret in silico or predict in silico the functional consequences of non-coding variation. The problem here isn't the cost of whole genome sequencing. The problem is our inability to interpret whole genomes.
2: It therefore seems that we have got a long way to go before whole genome sequencing will be the norm. Obviously, if we are able to use exome sequencing to pinpoint genetic variation that causes disease, there's a potential to take this to the clinic for diagnosis. Often it is difficult to diagnose people that present with rare genetic disorders, and we were interested in whether researchers that use exome sequencing now believe that this technique will be easily applicable in the clinic.
4: So there have been two kind of parallel stories over the last two years, I think, in this field. So one has been the application of exome sequencing to solve new Mendelian diseases. I think the second sort of thing that's been occurring has been a large number of instances in which people are attempting to solve new Mendelian disorders or to identify new disease genes and simply end up diagnosing a Mendelian disorder in a, in a patient where you know the disease gene is already known, uh, it was simply that that particular gene was not necessarily suspected for one reason or the other. This essentially points to the fact that we're not very good at phenotyping, right? In the clinic, I think you know, we're we good in, in certain contexts, but given how heterogeneous the presentation of Mendelian disorders can be, it is possible that exome sequencing may represent a much more cost-effective way of uh, immediately going to a diagnosis even for uh, Mendelian disorders where the, you know, where the degree of suspicion is high in a particular gene or a particular set of genes based on the phenotypic characteristics. And I think for a lot of patients, this may avoid diagnostic um, journeys that individuals go through from one clinician to another clinician trying to get a a proper, you know, the correct diagnosis. Second, I think, you know, represents really an unbiased way of, of really just doing a comprehensive survey of all genes and and all Mendelian disorders in one shot that's becoming increasingly cost-effective to do. So this is becoming, becoming cost-effective so quickly that I think in the long run, it, you know, it might end up actually saving the healthcare system dollars to, to do this earlier and, in, the, in the diagnostic process.
2: Jay Schenger thinks that, in principle, taking exome sequencing to the clinic is very possible and could reduce what he termed the diagnostic journey, in which patients go from clinic to clinic to find the cause of their disease. However... What needs to happen in practical terms to bring exome sequencing to the clinic? Elaine Mardis.
5: I think a lot of things have to occur um, to make that a reality. And much of this, of course, is ongoing at present, just in terms of work that you know, multiple groups are involved in. So in the United States, we've been having lots of conversations with regulatory groups um, from the government involved. Really, trying to understand what are the essence of the challenges to reproducibility for the for the methodology, including the bioinformatic analysis. and um you know it's healthy to have those kinds of dialogue because it gets all of the approaches out in the open and we understand what the sources of errors are and how to make things more systematized or systematic in terms of the approach and the results that are obtained from the approach. I think that's definitely a a portion of what needs to take place. We also need to do the kind of groundwork to show that next-generation methods are comparable or better than the current state-of-the-art in the clinical laboratory setting, which is typically using standard PCR and capillary sequencing approaches to get an answer. And so these cross-comparisons have to be done to the point where the clinical laboratory and the regulatory agencies feel that the same answer or a better set of answers, if you will, in terms of more sensitivity to all kinds of mutations, are actually obtained using the next-generation methods versus the capillary-based method. And then the other component that's going to become really critical is going to be physician education not only uh, about which test to order when, because, of course, it's the physician that orders the test, and so in order to, to ask for the test to be done, that physician needs to really understand why that test could be informative, and once we have the physician education up to the point where they know to order the test, then, of course, they have to be able to interpret the results of the test in terms of what that means um, for the therapeutic options available for the patient, if that's indeed the question that's being asked. And um, so there's a lot still to work out, as you can tell from that list. But I think, you know, it's sort of like we have to get started on it already, and then all of these necessities will sort of fall into place as we go along, rather than being, you know, sort of frightened by all the things that need to be done and not doing anything. So this seems to be the sense that you know, in the in the discipline right now is that we just need to get these things underway and, you know, sort it out as we go along to the point where we feel really comfortable to introducing it into the clinical space.
2: We do therefore have quite a way to go before we can use these sequencing techniques as diagnostic tests. Clearly, reproducibility is a key problem when it comes to anything with a medical application. However, there are other ethical issues when it comes to sequencing personal genomes or indeed exomes. When sequencing a whole genome or exome, it is likely that other disease-causing mutations will also be found in that individual, as Elaine Mardis found in one of the two papers that we discussed.
5: second paper is uh, essentially sort of a, uh interesting one in that one of the things that people often say about whole genome sequencing as a negative is uh, what's typically referred to as um unintended consequences or unintended results where you are sequencing a person's genome for one purpose, but in the process of doing that, you actually identify something else, which isn't what you were looking for, but consists of information that needs to be returned to that patient or that patient's family for their own information and health care purposes. So in this case, uh, the patient whose genome we were sequencing was actually deceased She was a patient that's being studied in the context of a large project we have sequencing the genomes of uh, therapy-related AML or TAML. So these are patients that are typically treated for a solid tumor or two. This patient had breast, then ovarian cancer. And because of the aggressiveness of the chemotherapy agents that are applied to the solid tumor, they later go on to develop uh, acute myeloid leukemia. Often, this is a a fatal course for them. This was the case in this patient. Um, She was already deceased. What we found in sequencing her genome, again, which is described in the JAMA paper, is that she had a de novo mutation in a gene called TP53, It would not have been picked up by conventional methods of PCR and sequencing. The underlying germline mutation in TP53, which he had, is essentially indicative of a syndrome called Lee-Fraumeni syndrome. And patients with Lee-Fraumeni syndrome have mutations that they inherit in TP53, which gives them a lifelong tendency to develop cancer. And certainly her clinical history was indicative of this. Again, this patient was deceased, but she had three living children. So this information needed to be transitioned back to the family members. These children needed to understand that they should have been that they should be tested to see if they carried the mother's mutation in their genomes, and if they were positive for that test, then they need to begin a, a essentially lifelong vigilance. Uh, about the development of cancer from a very early age, typically in the in the early 20s is when you start giving patients full body CT scans to pick this up. It's important to pe- for people to know that yes, you will find things that you often don't anticipate, but that this can be dealt with and should be dealt with rather than you know again just sort of hoping that you don't you know not doing whole genome sequencing because you're you're concerned about what might happen.
2: There are a lot of important ethical factors to consider when sequencing genomes of individuals, not least that they might not understand the implications of the identification of additional disease mutations. In the example just discussed, Elaine used the resources at her medical school, the Cancer Genetic Counselor. So when these techniques do eventually go into clinical use, it will be important to make sure that these resources are available. In addition, informed consent procedures before sequencing will have to be altered to be appropriate. I spoke about this with Joris Veltman, too.
1: Um, Well, so it's it's clear that both when you start doing genome sequencing as well as exome sequencing, uh, that indeed this becomes an an issue. It's like how do you... Uh, handle the data how do you report back data to the to the patients how do you handle um, uh, clinically relevant findings which are, are not uh, let's say related to the to the diagnostic requests huh? so for example a mutation in the breast cancer gene in the patient with intellectual disability uh, so clearly uh, when we uh, started thinking about diagnostic uh, applications we we uh, uh, of course uh, had to, to completely set up and then revise our informed consent procedures um, to think about how to handle this. And I think that that's a major issue. I think uh, that's something that uh, we see that, that now we're moving towards diagnostics that a lot of people uh, uh, now see that the major challenge is indeed like how to organize, uh, uh, let's say, uh, the, the the part of informing patients, what to report back, uh, yes or not. It's also something where we have to learn a lot. And it's very important to, uh, to do this in a, in a good way because uh, we want, of course, uh, to do things uh, uh, in the proper way and, and also get the uh, yeah, both the, 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 the patients as well as uh, the patient organizations uh, along with us. So we need to uh, be very clear on what we do.
2: Someone that would understand the implications of identifying additional mutations is Jim Lupski, who, as we heard earlier, has previously had his genome sequenced. Here, he tells us about the unexpected findings. There's always going to be a little bit trepidation. From when, when you're dealing with the unknown,
3: trying to move forward on that. And certainly we've all heard the many of the naysayers who said how we shouldn't do this, why we shouldn't do this, and how we might find something that really upset people. And I think this is something we have to deal with in clinical medicine all of the time. But what's most important, I think, in the end is to have the correct information. Now, when we did do the sequence, one of the variants we initially found was remarkably uh you you find these variants uh, after you do the whole genome sequence and then you try to match databases so when you match the human mutation database it pulled up a hit and it said that that its very variant was found in a 12 year old boy in a persistent vegetative state this was at the adrenal leukodystrophy locus so then you ask yourself well you know is jim lefsky in a persistent vegetative state or isn't he in a persistent vegetative state Well, I didn't think I was, and um, it was a little scary, but then we went to the original paper that reported that, and we saw that they actually found more than one variant in that patient, and this is the one that they picked that they thought was the most likely to be pathogenic. So I don't know. Maybe that patient really needed all three variants for the pathology, or maybe one of the other ones is the important one, but... obviously, I didn't have that neurological disease. Then the other funny thing was we did find variants that could turn out to be very, very useful for me, okay? We found variants in different pharmacogenetic traits. Although it didn't help me at that very minute, it had turned out that three years before we did my genome sequence, um, you know, here I was worrying about, my scharcomerative disease and some of my future related to health issues regarding that, and I woke up one morning shaving, and there was a lump in my neck, and it turned out to be a squamous cell carcinoma, and I ended up getting months of radiation. Now, had I needed chemotherapy, we saw from the pharmacogenetic profile that there were certain drugs I would want to stay away from.
2: The unexpected findings in the genome are not always negative, but can provide some useful information too. Making sure that people receive the appropriate advice on their results will be a very important consideration if these studies are taken to the clinic. We've discussed the applications and development of modern sequencing and capture sequencing technologies. In our special issue, we have articles on applying exome capture in mouse and wheat, in addition to an article investigating the genetics of hereditary deafness. If you are interested in finding a bit more about exome sequencing and its applications, please do check out the September issue of Genome Biology
1: genome biology is published by biomed central the open access publisher find us online at genomebiology.com and on twitter at genome biology the podcast was produced in london by joe barrett hannah stauer and kieran o'neill